Well, good morning. I have an impossible task. Impossible. If you were here last week, how am I supposed to complete with free frozen yogurt and Play-Doh for everybody? How am I supposed to compete with that? The children's guy comes up here one time a year and he brings in frozen yogurt and Play-Doh. That's not fair. So you're going to have to put up, John was the exciting pastor. This is my stress ball. Uh, you're going to have to put up with the boring guy today. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Kirk, and I am one of the pastors here at Southridge. If you're visiting today, we've already welcomed you, but we want to do that again. So thanks for being with us today. Over the past few weeks, as, have been, as has been said, we've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the exploits of several people from Israel's history. If you've read the entire chapter, then you know that it, it recounts some impressive feats by some individuals of faith, uh, people who believed in God, but also obeyed God, trusting in him for the outcome, whatever their situation. Last week, John told us about Moses and his parents and how their uh, faith act was to set their condemned infant son in a reed basket and to float him down the river on the Nile. Years later, all of Israel would benefit from that step when Moses as a man would lead the entire nation out of captivity in Egypt. So 430 year period of enslavement began to come apart because two parents who trusted and believed in God set their boy down the river straight into the household of Pharaoh, the very man who would see him dead. So where Pharaoh had intended for the river to bring death, God ordained that it would instead bring life and eventually freedom for his people. Probably though, on a scale, that Moses' parents didn't see coming. They had never anticipated what God would do. God had a plan. Their role in it was to follow faithfully. Today, we'll look at a couple of more, three of them actually, Hall of Faith figures. But before we do, I wanna start by contending something. I wanna start by saying that I think true faith in God should lead us, as Wes said earlier, like Moses' parents, to take faith steps to for there to be some type of action. Perhaps not as drastic as Moses' mother and father, but action of some sort nonetheless. To put it another way, our faith, my faith, yours, ought to be visible in terms of, of how we live, what we give towards, how we love, how we grieve, in what we do, and in what we don't do. It ought to be tangible, real. I say that because it would seem inadequate if faith was just limited to words. That would show me that there was a lack of something definite. There's something missing in terms of trust in God. And while words do show some level of belief, uh, I would call that, if that's it, I would say that's more of a, of a hollow or a shallow faith. James was Jesus' brother, and he had something to say about the relationship between faith and deeds, as Wes mentioned this morning. He started out like many others in his day. If you don't know James' story, he started out like many other people in that time where he wasn't entirely convinced of his brother as the Messiah. That changed after the resurrection, so much so that James actually became one of the preeminent leaders in the church. In fact, he was martyred for his faith in his brother. If he had a chance to recount his faith and live, he didn't. 
He began his first letter to first century Jewish Christians with this greeting. He says, James, a servant, the Greek word is doulos, meaning bond servant or slave. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in chapter two, he challenges his readers further saying that a person displays their faith in God by what they do. He says this in chapter two, verse, uh, excuse me, 18. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Faith in action, James would say, demonstrates true belief. Now, that's not to say that action earns us anything. Each of the people we've looked at this summer, as well as those that we'll look at today, their, their faith uh, didn't earn them something by their good actions. Rather, they, what I'm trying to say is they weren't rewarded with a higher capacity to believe just because of what they did. Rather, they, they est- their established faith in God, because they believed in God, because they trusted holy in God, that belief actually motivated them to act, to take steps of faith, action again. Abel, Abel's one guy we have not looked at this summer. You remember Abel, his brother Cain? Uh, he's, he's one we haven't studied this summer. We know that Abel loved God, that the way he loved God was pleasing to God. It was Abel's belief in God that, desert, that God deserved his best that motivated Abel to give the best of his flocks. When it came time for a sacrifice, Abel's faith and belief that God deserved his best motivated him to give his best. He didn't hold anything back from God. It says the Bible in Genesis chapter five, another guy, Enoch. He's an interesting guy. Enoch, all we learn about him is that his faith was so deep and so trusting, he believed in God, that God actually took him straight to heaven. He's one who went to heaven, escaped death. We don't know what it was about Enoch that pleased God. What we do know is that his faith was pleasing, that whatever he had done in life, he was faithful. These guys are inspiring. They were faithful. They weren't words only people. There was action to what they believed. They were faith inspiring. And so I get their inclusion in Hebrews chapter 11. I look at somebody like that and it's a testimony to what God has done and it's inspiring and it should inspire us. Then there are some that are are actually in the text in Hebrews 11. They're what, and I'm not trying to judge here, but I would say they're they're a little harder to see. They're, They're more faith challenged. They're slightly less shiny in terms of their story. They're the noticeably imperfect examples. People like Rahab, who Elizabeth shared with us about a few weeks ago. Rahab had been a prostitute. Not only that, she was in an enemy camp. She was not an Israelite. Noah, his drunkenness caused some issues in his family, if you've read his story. Noah was a drunk for a time in his life. Even Abraham had his issues, his trust issues in God. If you remember, he is the one who got out ahead of God. God had told him that, that all of the nations would be, would be blessed through, through his line, through his seed. And yet at a, at a ripe old age, he still had no child. And so he got out ahead of God and he decided to have a child by his servant, Hagar, and his son Ishmael was born. He didn't wait for the delivery of God's promise of a son through his wife, Sarah. Yet in spite of his mistake and the mistakes of these others, in spite of their past failures, they too displayed some faith in God. Abraham later took Isaac up on the mountain. God tested his faith, if you will, and he proved faithful. Then we come to the group that we're gonna talk about today. I've called them the flawed. Um, I find them a little harder 
to understand when you just read their names, why they're included. There's not much of a backstory on them. In fact, to get their backstory, you have to go elsewhere in scripture, but I've called them the flawed. So read along with me in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. It will be on the screen for you. If you like, there's just a little bit of background context here as we get started. It says, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. That would be the nation of Israel leaving slavery in Egypt. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Ben told us about them a couple of weeks ago. Faith in action, their faith is obvious. They stepped into between two towers of water and they crossed on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, action again, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now listen to this. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samsa, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and all the prophets, who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. A little further on, whose weakness was turned to strength. That's interesting. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. No doubt what's being shared here relate to those, those guys. And if you know their stories, there's, you can pick up pieces of it, uh, of what they did, routed foreign armies. I, I can tell who that is. Uh, here's the thing. They don't sound bad here, do they? They sound pretty good. David, for one, despite his, his moral failure with Bathsheba, he was later called a man after God's own heart. Gideon is fascinating because Gideon started out with an army of 32,000 men facing an army of 120,000 men. And God told him, I want you to whittle it down. I want you to whittle your army down. And so he whittles from 32,000 down to 300. And then with 300 men faces an army of 120,000. That's, that's an outnumbered ratio of 400 to one. Can you imagine being responsible for taking out 400 of the enemy? That's clearly an act of faith. Some people might call that insanity, but clearly he was motivated by his belief that God would be faithful. And if he lost, which he didn't, by the way, I understand why he's mentioned here. That's a massive faith act. What I wonder about is I wonder about Samson. I wonder about Barak and I wonder about Jephthah. If you, if you know them, their faith stories, they're a little less shiny. They're a little less compelling. Uh, reluctance and fear are in the mix for a couple of them. And so what did they do that cemented their position here among the more obvious giants of the faith? How is it that the author included them? What we know is that in the period in which they lived, they lived in the period of the judges from around 325 years before Saul was king of Israel. It was a spiritually dark time in Israel. There was no king, they were, they were ruled by the judges. If you wanna know more about them and their stories, they're actually found, like I said, in the book of Judges. I've listed those locations for you in your program outline this week so you can check out those chapters. Read them and see if you don't agree with me that they appear a little more faith challenged than faithful. Now, that being said, God inspired the author of Hebrews to include them, and so clearly, we are supposed to learn something from them and to apply it where it's appropriate to our lives. So I save you on flipping through your Bible today. I'm gonna give you the highlights of their story. Samson is chronicled in uh, uh, Judges chapter 13 to 16, and we know that, that his faith in God afforded him prodigious strength. He was, you know, we might call him a beast of a man. He was a man's man, he was a strong 
powerful man. He was able to overcome seemingly impossible physical challenges and odds, but he lacked in righteousness. And he was ultimately overcome by his affections for a woman uh, who wanted to undo him. Delilah beguiled him with her beauty. And as he fell completely under her control and fell asleep, uh, she had his head shaved, thereby breaking his Nazarite vow to never cut his hair and his strength was gone. The end was not good for him. Uh, He was taken captive, forcibly blinded, and he was made to grind grain for a very long time. No longer the man of power and the man of faith. Still, though, his previous faith achievements are a testament to what God can do and had done through him. So points go to Samson for his past faith successes. That brings us to the first point in your outline. In, In matters of faith, and it's easy to see here with Samson, in matters of faith, look to the good in people. I know it's hard to have grace for their missteps, their moments of diminished or weak, even absent faith. I know it's challenging. The reality is though, that if we walk with Christ long enough, we will all need measures of grace from time to time from one another. So we should show grace and practice dispensing it as well. This is not easy for me. As a hockey referee, I was trained to adjudicate and to penalize the offenders swiftly and severely if necessary. Referees are known for their ability to manage conflict and personalities. They're not known for their grace. They're not known for being yuck, yuck, it's okay, don't do that again kind of people. In the fire service, I worked on a team of guys. I had a crew of five that I worked with. I was one of five. And our job was to to mop up uh, chaos and mayhem from other people's poor decisions in life. And sometimes the stupidity was so high, it was really challenging to have grace, to feel grace, to show grace. Dealing with dysfunctions in people is challenging. And even though I am in ministry now and have been for 12 years, I can become jaded and weary dealing with people. Grace is not always the first thing that crosses my mind and sometimes not my lips. Ask my family, it's not my middle name. Kindness and compassion are not always my primary thoughts and feelings. If my wife says one thing to me more than anything else, it's kindness, dear, kindness. Kindness will go a long way. Kindness, dear. You're shocked, I know. Not Kirk. It's true. What about you? What are you, what are you struggling with in terms of the other Christians in your life, the other people in your life, those who struggle on the walk with Christ? Are they, are they a burden to you? Does their past constantly entice them to turn away from Jesus and the message of the gospel and to go the way of the world? Have you had it with the repetition of their one step forward, two steps back? Have you had it with them? Has God had it with us? Has he stopped listening to you? Or... Does he show grace? Does he 
constantly remind you, whether it's through the words of a speaker or the words of a song or the tugging in your heart, does he constantly remind you of his grace and his great love for you, always willing to restore us to right relationship with himself? Can we do the same for people in our lives? Because here's the thing, guys, if we're being honest, what those fledgling Christians need more than anything is more grace, not less. They need more Christian influence in their life, not fewer people of faith. More demonstrated grace in order to persevere in what they have in faith today to be what they can grow into in faith tomorrow. Who has God brought to mind just now as I've been talking about this and sharing my own shortcomings here with my family and with others? Who has God brought to mind for you that you need to show more grace toward? How can you again this week reach out in his name, showing his love, encouraging and supporting them in their faith journey as you continue to walk with them for just another mile or two? Jephthah, is our next guy. He was a, a brilliant military commander known for skillfully negotiating and laying out kind of the plan of what his army was gonna do next for his adversary so that they would know what was coming. And while he would often rely on his skills as a negotiator, he was not afraid of a battle. He was not afraid to commit his troops to war. In one such battle, a war with the Ammonites, he makes a rash vow to God. He kind of blurts it out. I don't know anybody in leadership that just sort of blurts things out, do we? He hoped to secure victory by making a pledge to God. And he says, he, he asks God to, to deliver the Ammonites into his, his hands. And that if God would be faithful and do this for him, that whatever came out of his house to greet him, when he returned in triumph, when he went home, whatever came out of his house to greet him, he would offer as a burnt offering sacrifice to the Lord. Seems kind of crazy to say that. It's probably not so bad if it's the neighbor's cat that walks out. I don't want to offend cat lovers, but what was he thinking? Like, who's going to come out of his house to greet him when he returns home? It's a difficult story to understand for a couple of reasons. One, the vow was not necessary. God had led and was gonna to continue to lead him in his exploits and his conquests. So God was already on his side. But the other reason it's kind of crazy is because human sacrifice was known by the Jews to be an abomination to, to the Lord. He would have been fully aware of God's stand on this. So why did he make the vow? Nonetheless, he made it. And the consequences for his daughter were significant because she's the one who came out of his house to greet him when he returned home. Now, what we don't know, we actually don't know her fate. We don't know whether she was burned alive as an offering or whether she was set apart as a virgin in service to God. What we do know is that she was his only child, meaning that whichever way that fell, he would be without descendants. Maybe, maybe he was too proud to admit his carelessness in speaking, promising hastily. Maybe he was too self-absorbed to publicly concede before those who heard him that he was wrong, that it was rash, and to seek forgiveness from God and release from his vow. Maybe he felt forced and compelled to uphold the vow because after all, how could the general not be faithful to God with his words? Whatever the case, he kept his word. As I said, we don't exactly know how, but he kept his word. And so perhaps his faith step was this. Perhaps for Jephthah, the faith step was to trust God 
with the terms by which he would have to fulfill the vow. Not that it honored God, but he would have to trust God with the terms. You said it, and now he has to, to have faith and trust God with what's gonna come. It was ill-considered for sure, but he kept his word. And so points to Jephthah for keeping his word. I wonder though, I wonder if God's not more interested in, in rather than our rash vows, I wonder if he's not more interested in our day-to-day demonstrated obedience than our hastily promised pledges. You know, the ones I'm referring to. Hey God, if you'll, if you'll help me make more money, I will be more faithful in my giving. I'll give you a full tithe. If you'll do that for me, Lord. Hey God, if you'll get me the promotion at work, I will be a better Christian witness to my coworkers when they work for me. Or God, if you'll bring me through this illness, this sickness, this disease, if you'll save my son from this affliction, I will devote the rest of my life to serving you faithfully. We, we, we all make them. We all bargain with God from time to time. I wonder if the Lord wouldn't be thrilled if our faith in him reflected what Paul said of the Thessalonians in the opening of his second letter to them. He says this, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so because your faith is growing more and more. And the love you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance by faith in all of the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. I wonder if that's not what God wants to be said of us. In all of the trials and persecutions, he could boast of our perseverance and our faith. Notice that they weren't praised for making loud and proud promises to God. They were praised for persevering. And that brings us to the second point in your outline. Grow your faith daily so that you can persevere when trials come because they will come. No amount of bargaining with God will help us. Only a strong faith can help us persevere in life. What about you? Have you ever bargained with God for his favor, for his blessing? Or have you ever taken him for granted and lived even for a time, even a day or a few hours as if there's really no need for him? Because we, quite honestly, we live in a part of the world where we can mostly manage pretty well. We're very blessed to have what we have. I was with my boys at the air show the other day. We saw some folks who had some limitations that would definitely impact their ability to appreciate and enjoy the air show in a way we can. My boys can climb the stairs. We can climb into the cockpit. We saw some people that were physically limited. We saw some people that were blind. We can see a plane. No one has to describe it to us. God has blessed us. They're blessed as well. They're blessed differently. We are blessed by God. But do we ever bargain with God for more blessing? Do we ever ask him for more favor? Or do we press into God, trusting him for guidance, in, even in the matters that seem inconsequential and certainly in the matters that seem insurmountable? I think we tend to hit our knees when we, when we feel the insurmountable coming. I wonder if we don't try to run through it when it's inconsequential. A family I'm familiar with, their youngest son, recently went through a serious battle with cancer and thankfully he has, after three and a half months of treatment, he has come out the other side and today he is cancer-free and we're thankful for that. We've been following their story, praying with them, uh, praying, w- watching their blog and their Facebook posts. His mom wrote this recently. She said, I thought that our discharge from the hospital would allow, them, allow us to get back to a comfortable life. Instead, the hospital has grabbed our hearts, causing us to feel more love and empathy for those still suffering. 
She goes on to say that they thought they would be ecstatic to come home from the hospital, but after living so long side by side with so many people who have suffered so much, they've been permanently changed. How could they not be? They now pray more than they ever have. And consequently, she says, we feel his presence in our daily living in ways far more substantial than we did before Jesse got sick. This is amazing. She says, we fully believe that God placed us in that unique position so that we could understand what those people were enduring. And so that post Jesse's recovery, we could pray, we could intercede for their healing. We could petition God for his mercies, for healing in their precious children. And we couldn't have related to this beforehand in that way, she says. Christine says life is much richer now because their family relies on God differently today. Would that we could all say that? Do we rely on God differently today? Does it take something like that to get our attention? Or are we pressing into him daily? What about you? What has the Lord done for you? Recently, what has he done today? What does he want to do as you walk by faith for, with him? What has he done for me? What does he have in store for us, those he calls his beloved children? We'll learn and we'll follow him. We will persevere if we will deepen our dependence on him today. Then we'll be able to persevere tomorrow. Finally, we come to Barak. Barak's story is found in Judges chapter four and five, and he was another military commander in Israel. He lived about a hundred years before Saul became king. And the Canaanite king, a guy named Jabin, is giving the Jewish settlers a rough time, harassing them and terrorizing them with his army. Long story short, Barak is summoned by the woman judge, Deborah, and he is given the responsibility of taking his army of 10,000 soldiers and going to defeat Sisera, who is the commander of the army of Jabin. But Barak initially refuses. He kind of says, I'll go if, there's a caveat. He says, I will go, but not unless you, Deborah, judge, ruler, you go with me. Apparently, his faith in God was enough to motivate him to war, sort of. It wasn't so deep that he would outright obey without questioning. And so Deborah agrees to accompany him, but she rebukes him and his half-hearted faith. And she says this in Judges chapter four, verse nine. It says, certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the way you are going about this, another translation reads, the honor will not be yours for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. No honor for you, the honor will be mine. Was he faithful? Did he obey? I remember when I started to experience what I thought might be God introducing me to the idea of ministry, uh, 13 and a half, 14 years ago. Uh, I was at that time working as a firefighter for the city of Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was enjoying my career. It was going well. I had every reason to love my job. I had a great crew. I had every reason to ex expect future opportunities for advancement within the department. Four years in though, three and a half years in, I started to realize how much I loved working in our church with our youth ministry as a youth worker. And at some point along the way there, a friend asked me if I had ever considered vocational ministry. I laughed 
at first because I already, really, I already, I was being selfish actually. I laughed because I already enjoyed the best of both worlds. I, I loved my job in the fire service and I still had youth ministry opportunities on a regular basis. Long story short, uh, it gradually, the question gradually grew into a burden and eventually it became an affliction, a, 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 an affliction. I could not get away from the idea that ministry might be in my future. It scared the fire out of me. It's not good if you're a firefighter. It scared me because I was not equipped. I had no idea what I was getting into, even by entertaining the thought. I thought I was in the clear when I went to a friend who was a pastor and I said, hey, I think this is going on in my life. And he said, can I be honest? And I was like, well, yeah, I want you to be honest. That's why we're talking. He said, I don't think you have the personality for it. <laughs> it's true. That's what he said. My wife's thinking of his name right now. She knows who said <laughs> Uh, and as much as that stung a little, I knew he loved me. So as much as that stung a little, I thought, whew, okay, good. You know, it's like, I can ignore God now because I have heard from you, Barry. Thank you so much. Uh, and I can get on with my career and I don't have to dread this anymore. But here's what happened next. God wasn't done with me. He, he started to take away my joy for my job, quite honestly, I started to absolutely dread the politics and the bureaucracy of working for a municipal fire department, a big one at that. Uh, I dreaded it. And as much as I tried to not pay attention to it and just do my job, it's like God was using that to leverage my thinking. I have something different for you. He didn't say that it wouldn't have frustrating days, by the way. Finally, Another good and godly friend, I, I shared this with him and he, he said this to me. He said, listen, will you just poop or get off the pot? He said that. He used the word poop too. Uh, he said, you seem to feel this way about this thing, but if you can't make a decision, why don't you do this? Why don't you apply for some schooling opportunities? Because you keep harping on the fact that you're not vocationally prepared. So apply to some educational institutions, look at some ministry possibilities and see if an opportunity comes up. And if God leads you in that direction, then take a step. Now, Please don't take that as a solid theological basis by which to determine the course of God's will for your life. We could get into trouble. I could get into trouble because you see what Pastor Kirk said. But here's the thing. His challenge did help me do this. It did help me get over my fear of leaving the job that I loved, that I had been successful to at that point. Over the next six months, I worked hard to do my job well. But I also began to take steps to pursue ministry. I looked at both possibilities. I looked at education. I looked at were there ministries that I could get involved in vocationally that I wouldn't have to go to school right away. What's the point? It took me a long time to move. It took me a long time to spiritually move. Uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because life change should be well thought out. But I stayed afraid this is what I want you to get. I stayed afraid until I actually took the step. Until I actually did something, I was scared. All the thinking about it, all of the, the counsel and the words and the wisdom, none of it took away my fear. None of it. Not even the would you apply, would you just do something. That didn't take away my fear. My fear went away when I did something. That's when it went away. I knew 
God was asking me to do something and I knew I wasn't gonna feel good about it until I did the thing he was calling me to do. Think back to Barak. His fear of leading into battle seemed to overtake him because he failed to recognize that it wasn't Deborah that was actually calling him to war. It was God who had ordained through her that he would lead the army of Israel. And while we might be tempted to discount him as therefore insecure or possessing a weak faith, I still think Barak deserves some points here for persevering and going in spite of his fear. I don't know what he expected Deborah to say. I don't wanna imply that the scripture's saying this. I, I'm not saying that at all. But I don't know if he thought, well, if I throw this back on her, she's gonna go, are you kidding me? I'm not going to war and it would be over. I don't know that. I don't know if he just needed the reassurance of you're the leader, you're the one the nation looks to. If you're by my side, this will go well. Maybe that's what he was thinking. I don't know. But I do know that he had to take the step. So what do we learn from him? I think it's this, it's persevere. Persevere in spite of your fear. Persevere in your walk with Jesus. There will be uncertainties, but he's got us. He's got us. He's called us to faith. He's called us to himself. He's got us. We see God's loyalty throughout scripture. We never come to that story where we go, aha, finally, somebody who had faith in God and it ended badly. Finally, somebody who could prove God unfaithful. We don't find that story. Whether it's Moses confronting Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. Whether it's Abraham going up on the mountain with Isaac and fear that he's gonna have to sacrifice his son. Whether it's Peter and John who proclaim Jesus to the high priest and the Sanhedrin, boldly Christ crucified. God was with them. Hebrews 13, five, the second part of that verse says this, it reminds us that God will never fail us and he will never abandon us. Those are absolute terms, never, never. Not maybe just once, never. What about you? Where are you at in this? Has, has God ever called you to do something that overwhelmed you, maybe even scared you? Say a mission trip to a dangerous part of the world. The whole world's a dangerous place, isn't it? Maybe sharing your faith with a coworker, just broaching that conversation causes you to clam up and sweat. Maybe it's giving generously to someone or something. God, if I give that much, what am I gonna do? Maybe, maybe ministry. Maybe ministry. Has he called you, is he calling you to ministry, to consider ministry. Maybe you didn't fully embrace his leading at the time, or maybe you did half-heartedly. Maybe you still haven't embraced his leading in this way. You're still wrestling through the pros and the cons of should I or shouldn't I as you try to figure out, am I certain that this is from God, or is Kirk just arm wrestling with me spiritually this morning? What's God calling you to? Some of you, you have, you've lived this You've, you've followed God, you've pursued him relentlessly and he's proven himself faithful. For those of us that struggle from time to time, are we hamstrung by fear or are we listening and taking steps by faith? Remember, he's got you, he's got you, you're his, he's got you. I started out by asking this question, why the author of Hebrews included Jephthah, Barak and Samson? I honestly, I didn't get it at first when I started reading 
We might argue that the author was looking for any historical ray of faith light in an otherwise dark and gloomy period of Israel's past. So he chose these three, but I don't think that's it. I don't think he was looking for perfection. If he was, he wouldn't have chose them. He wouldn't choose me. See, even where the the shinier heroes, the ones that we know, the Bible stories that the kids learn upstairs, the Moses and the David stories, even where they're concerned, ultimately it's not about them. And they're not the heroes. They're not the true faith heroes. Ultimately, it's about Jesus. It's about him. And so I believe the author's purpose was this. I believe the purpose of sharing these names is that we should approach them and realize that they demonstrated enough faith. In the moment, they demonstrated enough faith and God worked through the process of that faith demonstration and he did more than they could have imagined. Moses' mother putting that baby in the basket. She had no earthly idea what the Lord would do by that simple step. Their feeble best was enough to inspire us to grow in our faith commitment to Christ. In Colossians chapter one, verse 16 and 17, it says this, for in him, Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. Jesus is the only true hero of faith. So keep running life's race of perseverance. As the worship team starts to make their way back to the stage, I want to share one more verse with you. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The writer encourages us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, of our faith. Jesus is the true hero of faith. Follow him boldly. Live your faith like Jesus. Encourage one another to do likewise because the world is not gonna encourage you to press into Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, or ever. Encourage one another. Let's pray. Lord, as the, as the song goes, our faith alone in Christ. That's where we find our hope, Father. So Lord, give us faith to trust you, faith to follow you, faith to listen for your leading. God, you want to accomplish a work in us and through us. And Lord, we believe that your plan is true, that it is solid. God, that you are for us and not against us. And there are things, God, in this life that constantly, Lord, they honestly, they cause us to question. They cause us to fear and to tremble. And from time to time, God, there are people in this room, we've all been here, where we sometimes are tempted to just walk away. But God, you have called us to persevere. If there is an example for us, Jesus endured the cross for the glory set before him that he could redeem us by us back from death and eternal punishment. So God, today, looking to him as the author and the perfecter of faith, God, we we beg you, we beseech you, for your mercy, we beg you for courage, for strength, for encouragement, for support from brothers and sisters in Christ. God, that we would follow you faithfully to the end. Lord, the older I get, and I'm not old, but the older I get, the less I am impressed by the flashy gifted speaker and the more I am wowed 
by the man and the woman of God who are finishing well. Thank you for the saints who before us, Lord, the gray-haired saints who have persevered in faith, who are a testimony to the work you have done in them through Christ. God, help us look to them, be encouraged, and do likewise, that we would leave a legacy of faith for those who follow. We pray in the holy, the powerful, the set-apart name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.